Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for, uh, for being here, and uh, just thank you for uh, also showing grace to me. I um, keep, uh, for, you know, like there's things that uh, I need to say or, uh, and, and forget, um, even forget to introduce myself, and I know that's important because we have people visiting. Um, I'm Chris Chaw, I'm the Life Group's pastor here. Um, normally, our, our, our lead pastor is, is preaching here, um, going through the, the book of Romans at this time. Um, He's going to be back here next Sunday, and um, uh, if, uh, you know he's doing well, recovering well from uh, uh, getting uh, two two new knees, and uh, so keep him in your prayer, please. Um, but yeah, thank you for showing me grace, and uh, it's definitely uh, something I need every day. Um, wanted us to watch uh, a quick clip. It's a little uh, commercial for a church, and uh, I think uh, you'll get a good chuckle out of it. So if you'd cue that clip. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. Don't you just love satire? I do. As silly as that video was, I think, I think it really hits home uh, with some of us here. Uh, we do indeed live in a consumeristic culture and the influence of the world and its consumerism does affect us. It it affects how we look at the church as well. It's not selfish to look for certain things in a church. For example, if you're, you know, if you're, if one of your criteria is, Hey, I want it to be a gospel centered church. I'm praying that the Bible would be preached. I'm praying that there's some godly leadership there. Those aren't selfish things. But so often we search for churches based on personal preference. What time of day do you meet? You know, what day of the week? Uh, now, I'm, to- I'm not against Saturday services, but I have friends that, that attend it solely on the base that on, on preference. I like to watch the games on Sunday. This church has a service on Saturday, so it works out for me. What do you have for my children? What do you have for my teenagers? What, what kind of music do you play? How about the preacher? Is he funny? Is he entertaining? Is he going to keep my attention? What types of small groups do you have? So often, church really in reality becomes about me and not about him. And it isn't about cornerstone. It's not about a building. It's not about an institution. It's not even about your own needs. And the funny thing is, when you're, when you're in Christ, all your needs are, are met in reality. But it's about him. It's about the church being the vehicle in which God uses to draw all men and women to himself. Young and old, 
And as I study scripture, I keep getting drawn to this concept of the glory of God. It's about the triune God we worship. Now, a question I have for everybody in here is, what is more important than God? What is it? And for many of you, you would answer nothing. And if that's the case, then you and I need to understand how God sees the church. And one of the books that will give you the clearest pictures of the church and God's, like, cosmic mega plan and all this is the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. This letter written to the church to motivate to, uh, them to live lives that were consistent with the whole mission of Christ. The first half of the letter unfolds the whole plan of Christ, his administration and, the, and, and, and their calling. The second half of the letter describes how they should live in light of Christ's plan and his specific directives for ordering their lives. Look here at Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. This is what Paul writes. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Here in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, Paul is given given his twofold job description. One, he was given the responsibility to preach the gospel. And in verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan. We know that his responsibility to take the gospel to the Gentiles was revealed to him at his conversion, the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9. Here he adds to his job description by stating that he was told to reveal, in other words, Christ's plan for the church. That was one of his purposes, preaching the gospel and revealing Christ's plan for the church. In verse 9, the word plan comes from two words in the Greek, oikos and nomos, which is house law. It literally means house law. Paul's job was to reveal to the churches Christ's plan for his church, and that's what he did through his letters. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 17, Paul states that the Gentiles were separated from God's promises. Now, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that wall between Jew and Gentiles alike, are, they're made into one new family now because that wall is broken down. And Paul calls them, you are now the household of God. This new plan, the Jews and Gentiles being one in a new community called the church, that, that was a mystery, Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. The term mystery in the text refers to something that was hidden in the past but has now been revealed. And Paul had a special role in the revealing of this mystery, bringing to light the house order. In Ephesians 3, also see that Paul reveals several important aspects of the plan. Notice that the plan, his church, is the way in which the world will understand the wisdom of God himself. So much so that in Ephesians 3, that even, the, even in the supernatural realm, even the angelic and the demonic forces are going to be like, whoa, blown away that this was God's administration and his plan. Do you see that the church is at the center of God's plan for the universe? And it will be central to God accomplishing his purposes. If you study the book of Ephesians, and this is not one of the conclusions you've come to, that the church is central, to his plan, you need to study it again. You need to dig deeper. This is one of the central truths of Ephesians. 
his administration. Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? The household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Of course, in chapter 3, Paul also explains how the Gentiles are now partakers, along with the Jews, of the promise in Christ. Through Jesus, of course, through the gospel. David Hesselgrave, who's a theologian, explains various metaphors describe the church in its relation to Christ. It is his building, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It is his spiritual body, the full of him who fills all in all. It is, as it were, his bride, the object of his love and provision, Ephesians 5, 25 and 33. The church then is not an afterthought in the mind of God. He planned for it in eternity past and provided for it in the death and resurrection of his son. And the son prepared for its formation and development by instructing his followers as to their mission and empowering them by his spirit, Acts 1, 4 through 8. The church and the churches have no friend like their Lord. If Christians are to love what their Lord loves, they must love the church and the churches. In the final analysis, Christology, which is the study of Christ, is closely allied with ecclesiology, the study of the church. When we inquire into a person's faith, we do well to ask what the individual thinks of Christ and his bride, the church. It'll speak volumes to their understanding of faith. I was very blessed and challenged by the message Pastor John preached last week. I also had time to uh, just thank him for setting me up because today we're going to be diving into Titus chapter 2. And it's on an issue that he had raised. And if you remember, Pastor John um, gave us four areas in which we need to grow in. And the one I want to tackle today is that uh, the second one he covered, which was family life within the body of Christ. Family life within the body of Christ. If you're a believer, you're part of the family. Amen? Doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, all right? If you're a believer, you're part of the body of Christ. And Pastor John used a passage from 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, where Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in what? The household of God. How you're to behave in the household, meaning that there is a level of expectation for members of the body of Christ. You are to behave in a certain manner. The household of God, which Paul says is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth to the foundation of the truth. The church, the household of God, and how one ought to behave within that household. So as we come to Titus 2, what I want to share with you today is that in the Bible, there's a thing called, um, in the times of the early church, there was a type of literature called household text. These texts fall into two types, individual household texts and larger household texts for communities. In his letter to the churches, Paul uses both of these types. The purpose of the individual household text was to give a picture of the guidelines for life as a family, especially in light of how these families are to live within a community. Paul and, and Peter used the format of their culture to explain how families of Christians were to live within the church, God's family. There are three of these individual household texts in the New Testament letters. I'll just give you three of them. You can read them sometime. First one, uh, Ephesians 5, 22, 6 through 9. 
The second one, Colossians 3, 18, 4 through 1. And the third one being 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And examples of household texts designed for communities are the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And they deal with household guidelines for a local church body, a household, a family of families. The community household texts deal with the order of relationships within community life using a very similar style to that of the individual family household texts. So you see at these individual household texts, you'll see like Ephesians 5, husbands, wives, children, slaves, right? Within these other household texts, like the, um, like the pastoral epistles, you'll see groups of people, elders, deacons, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, slaves, and so forth. And one of the most basic passages within these community household texts <clears throat> excuse me, is Titus chapter 2. And if I had the time, I would spend three to four weeks just here in Titus chapter 2, but I'm going to try to hit a home run today, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to speed through this and um, uh, encourage you to read through this this week because there's so much stuff here in, in, in Titus chapter 2, okay? And I pray that as you, in, as you study Titus chapter 2, that you would look at it through the lens of this being a household text for the church of how, we're ought, how we ought to behave within the household of God. We know that Paul had told, instructed Titus to remain in Crete for the purpose of put what remained into order and to appoint elders in every town, Titus chapter 1 through 5. We know that Paul then gave Titus some guidelines, qualifications for for the elders you're going to be looking for. And Paul explains why the elders are to be appointed. They are to give instruction in sound doctrine. And number two, they're to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, Titus 1, 9. Don't you just love this? I mean, Paul, at some, I mean, at some point, the gospel made its way to the island of Crete, okay? And, and Titus is there, and you just have to love that, that when the gospel, like, hits a culture, it's messy, all right? That, that Paul has to send Titus to go back to put things into order. And it's just very comforting and encouraging to me as a pastor that, you know what, we don't have to have it all together. We have to have a firm understanding of the gospel, but when the, go- when the gospel clashes with culture, it is messy, all right? And it is a process of, of God working through his people. Titus was a young elder. He was mentored by Paul, and he was possibly saved through the ministry of Paul. And Paul loved this young elder. And we see that in the first chapter of Titus when he says, my true child in the faith. And what I love about the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, is that they were at the end of Paul's life. And they were, they were his last letters, like Second Timothy being his last letter. And we see in these letters, it was this, 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 this older gentleman, this seasoned veteran in the faith, wanting to pass on the torch, okay, of, 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 of the gospel to, to, to the next generation. And it was something that Paul had poured his whole life into, his whole life. Like, you look at Timothy and his ministry in Ephesus. Timothy was with Paul over 10 years before he became the elder in Ephesus. Titus, too, as he was going to appoint different elders, this was like well over 10 years that Titus was with Paul. And it just shows you this amazing dynamic of Paul and how he poured himself into both Timothy and Titus. And that should shatter some of our paradigms because we think we can run people through an eight-week Bible study and you're a disciple of Christ, you're ready. Oh, you have a desire? You're ready to serve. You're ready to preach. Where Paul is like spending year after year after year, tribulation after tribulation, Mentoring, discipling, given responsibility, but making sure that he's walking them through that. Should teach us a few things about discipleship today. 
And these were two men, Titus and Timothy, in which he personally discipled. At this point, he had been ministering for over 30 years. He had mentored these young elders for over 10 years. Titus wasn't, probably wasn't as close to Paul as Timothy was, but he was what one theologian calls Paul's troubleshooter. Titus knew how to handle difficult matters, and Paul trusted him with them. This is evidenced both by the situation in Crete as well as Corinth. He acted as Paul's messenger to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He went among the churches of the Gentiles to stir them up to make a contribution to the relief of the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And the last mention of Titus in the Bible is 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul tells Timothy that Titus had left Rome to Dalmatia. And tradition states that in his senior years, Titus worked among the churches on Crete and most likely later died on that island. This is extensive gospel ministry. Now we come here to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul shifts his focus away, right? Earlier here in chapter 1, Paul's now, after, after giving the qualifications of an elder, he begins to hammer these false teachers, right? Now he's shifting away from the false teachers, and he's shifting his focus onto Timothy, uh, onto Titus. Titus, you are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. The word sound means healthy. The false teachers were giving unhealthy doses of teaching that were destructive and cancerous. Okay, some of it, you know, whether, you know, whether some theologians say it was some form of Gnosticism or it was some form of legalistic righteousness that you're saved by what you do, okay, it was, it was just basically damnable hearsay. And it was destructive, cancerous, and in contrast to that, Titus was to teach healthy doctrine. Because the church, right, is to be uh, the foundation of truth. So Titus, as, as an elder, appoint men who are going to do the same thing, all right, who are going to teach healthy doctrine. And we all know today there's some unhealthy doctrine out there. So Paul was instructing Titus how believers now, so after, after he gives them the command of the charge to teach healthy doctrine, this was to funnel down to the believers, every believer in the body of Christ. Let me tell you that from Titus chapter 2, no one is exempt, Okay. This is what I love about these general generalization, like older men, younger men, or younger men, older women, younger women. It's like they're like blankets. They just cover everybody, all of us, okay? So the shift is now from pastors, elders, right? Then they move to false teachers, now to members of the congregation. Paul's going to now lay out how this fleshes out in the context of the local church, how we are to be as people in different seasons of our life, and in every area of our lives, from childhood to youth to young adult, adulthood, we're to live for the glory of God. And what does that look like? And for some people, this teaching may sound foreign. And I ask you this. Uh, you would please try, to, please try to remove some preconceptions that you may have, or if there's something that's challenged, take that to the Lord and pray. My paradigms are always being challenged as I, as I encounter the word of God, and I'm praying that yours are as well that we're growing and that we're allowing God to renew our minds in the way we look at things. So here we go. Uh, talking about uh, older men and women. <clears throat> and what you'll see here in this text is uh, you'll see some descriptions. And what, what, you see, uh, what you won't see are physical descriptions, as in certain age, height, blood type, amount of money they have in the bank. All, right? All the descriptions that we're going to go over today have to do with a person's character. 
And remember that Cretans, the people on Crete, were known to be liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Titus chapter 1, verse 12. And we know that the Cretans also had their, their own culture. They worshipped their own gods as well. And, you know, you have to understand as a believer, okay, fully immersed in culture, you know, how does this flesh out? How did it flesh out for them? And how does this flesh out today? Because for some of us, it's going to be like, whoa, I didn't realize how worldly I was thinking. I, I come across that many times in my own life. Wow, that's a worldly way of thinking. And the word of God has to, has to renew that. Anyhow, you and I have an incredible ability. We can't save ourselves. And we know that, but we have this ability where we're able to alter people's perception on how they see God. Somehow God has instilled that in us, right? How many friends do we have, for example, that refuse to enter the church because of the way so-called Christians live their lives? Right? That's an amazing ability. Like, if, if, if that's the way people are, Chris, that's not the God I want to worship. In fact, I have a very close family member of mine, you know, like we've been engaging of the gospel. That's the number one thing. I, I can't do that. I, I've just encountered too many Christians who have, who have just done like some of the most immoral things I know. And we have that ability to kind of just, you know, to, to really to bring glory to God in that manner or really to bring dishonor to his name. I'm not saying that it's dependent on us, but we have that, we have that weird ability. And I tell you that because Titus is preaching here, right? I mean, Paul is telling Titus to preach, all right, to set things into order, all right, and to tell the believers, look, guys, there's, there's much at stake here. We're the family household of God, and there are expectations, okay, not in a legalistic manner, but no, we're to behave in a certain manner. And why? Because we have a gospel witness. Guides us in how we're to be people of influence, and I know it's tough. Christians in modern America, we're... You know, so many Christians in modern America are easily influenced. You can look at some of our churches. And the call is instead of being influenced by the culture, we, we have to go into the culture and influence that. So Paul told Titus what the leaders of the church are to look like. In other words, what kind of lifestyles they're to live. So when you look at Titus 1 and you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, right, and you see the qualifications of elder, you know what's interesting about those? Those are all meant to, uh, to be for all believers. Just for leadership, it's, there's no option. Okay? If you're going to be an elder, you are, like, these things are evident. Not, not that you're perfect, no, but that these things are evident in your life. And do you remember one of the central qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3? He must manage his own what? His own household well first before he can manage the household of God, the family of families. This is critically important. And then now he shifts to explain that these people that we talk about, the older men, younger men, uh, older women, younger women, younger men, that he instructs them how they need to live their lives. It's like before you can make an impact, these are the things that you have to have in place. Starting with leadership, now coming to the members. Everyone plays a part, all with a purpose, to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, to share the gospel. How we live our lives matters. Amen? Titus 2.2, 2. older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Sober-minded carries the idea of being free from intoxication. It's used metaphorically to describe someone who is moderate. A temperate man will avoid extravagance and, and overindulgence. Older men are not to be drunk with the things of this world, whatever they may be. 
John MacArthur explains, the temperate older man is able to discern more clearly which things are of the greatest importance and value. He uses his time, his money, and his energy more carefully and selectively than when he was younger and less mature. His priorities are in the right order, and he's satisfied with fewer and simpler things. Sober-minded, dignified. This carries the idea of being revered and respected. It doesn't carry this idea of like this pridefulness or this haughtiness. Rather, it carries a picture of a dignified man. The dignified man doesn't laugh at immorality, sin, or things that are ungodly, nor does he laugh at things that are tragic or at the expense of others. Thinking of this uh, story I once heard of, um, of a church, a very conservative traditional church, and their, their, their church was um, located next to a college campus. And, um, you know, this is a very conservative church. Every wore, everyone wore their Sunday um, best, right? Men in, in, you know, just suits and everything. The women in, in dresses and family sat together. There was pews and, it was, you know, every Sunday it was, it was full. And keep in mind, they're, they're wanting to reach the college campus and, and God had put that on their heart and they were trying to figure this out. And one Sunday morning, the, the preacher, you know, he's got, his, he's got the big wooden pulpit here in the center and, he, and he's preaching from it. And uh, this uh, young man walks in through the back of, of the aisle and uh, he's, uh, he's got a mohawk. He's got tattoos. He's got, a, he's got like jean shorts with holes in them. He's got a t-shirt, a who farted t-shirt that has holes in them too. And he just begins to walk down the center of the aisle. And he looks down each aisle. It's full, full, full. So finally, he just comes up right in front of the preacher and sits on the floor. And he just starts listening. And then there's an elderly man in the back. All right. Remember? This godly elderly man. And he... Uh, Begin, he has his cane, and he begins to walk down the aisle as well. And, you know, all the people are like psh, psh, talking, talking, and, you know, some of the women are saying, oh, you know, he's going to give it to that young little man. He's going to put him in his place and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And this older man takes him a while to get down this center aisle, but as he, as he walks up to this young man, he just looks at him, and he smiles at him, and he just sits down right next to him. It's just a picture, you know, of, of, of how we're to pour into each other, the, the older men into the younger men. And so, guys, there's so many younger men that don't have godly examples. I talk to young men all the time. I remember being in a room like of, uh, um, there was like a bunch of like 20-somethings, all right? 21 to, to like 29 to 30 right there. And we just, we were gathering together, and I just asked a simple question. I want you to tell me about your father, okay? And tell me about his impact on your life. And everyone shared, and there was some great examples, and there was some not-so-great examples, but there wasn't a single young man that said, you know what? I had a godly example of, of how to walk with Christ. There were some good examples like, you know what? My father taught me good work ethic, what it meant to be, you know, a man in that aspect, how to, how to do things around the house and so forth. But not a single one said, this is that my father discipled me or taught me how to walk as, as Jesus walked. I'm telling you, if you're an older man, all right, there, is so, there are so many young people that need to be invested in. And it's the call. It's the call of the church. They're to be self-controlled. A better word would be sensible. They're to be sound in mind. In other words, they're to have healthy minds. And what are some characteristics? They use sound judgment, discernment, and wisdom in dealing with situations. And this comes from just walking with the Lord many years. Not that they're perfect. No, but that they've been walking faithfully with the Lord for a number of years. They've been through the battles. They have the scars. They understand their pitfalls. But you know what? Their depth and understanding of the gospel has grown so much. 
And they still live a life of repentance and of dependent, uh, just this ultimate dependency on Christ. They're able to control their physical passions, reject world standards, and resist worldly attraction. They're also sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Faith. This means that these men have a rock-solid faith in Jesus Christ. There's no compromise. As I said, they've walked with Christ for a number of years. And because of this, all right, their faith, their absolute trust rests in him. They don't waver back and forth. Love. These men love like Jesus Christ loved. Pouring their lives into others. That's, a, that's a, one of the most basic marks of a man. As you look at Jesus, sacrificial. Steadfastness. This is loyalty in the face of trouble and difficulty. They don't waver in times of trouble. You know why? Because their hope isn't in themselves. It's in Jesus Christ. When tragic things happen, they continue to walk with Christ because they're walking with him, trusting him every step of the way. And before we continue, I want to make it clear that I, I don't want to specify an age of an older man or woman, okay? Even though, like, during Paul's time, this is probably uh, men and women in their 60s. That's not the point, all right? Or 50s and 60s, really. So I don't want any of us to think, hey, you know what? I'm 49. I got a year to go. Or, you know, I'm 20. I'm single. This doesn't apply to me. This applies to everybody, okay? Again, this is a household text that applies to every member of this church. And we're to grow in godliness, both men and women. And the simple model of this church, all right? I know we're like, you know, sometimes we're just wanting a certain program or certain, you know. The simple model of discipleship is older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Why, why is that so hard, though? Like, how are we doing in that? It is going on in this church, and I'm so thankful for that. I praise God for that. But how are we doing as a church body as, as a whole? I can tell you for a fact that there are so many young people just waiting and wanting to be discipled and invested in. Titus 2, 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Stop right there. Reverent in behavior. In the Greek, this word has its root meaning in being priest-like. And it came to refer to that which is appropriate to holiness. In other words, older women are to be godly in the way they live their lives. A New Testament example of this is Anna in the Bible. Luke chapter 2, 36 to 37. I'm just going to read it real quick. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from, from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. I'm not saying that every older woman needs to be the clone of Anna who lives in the temple, worships, fasts, and pray. But as older women, you're to live godly lives. I've read of women in the early church who would, who would visit and pray for the sickest of people. I've read of women who searched the streets of pagan cities for abandoned babies. Oftentimes, in certain cities, these babies would be taken to be raised as gladiators or prostitutes. Christian older women would rescue, um, would rescue these children. And you could read just countless story after story of, the, of these godly women who were just, just on fire for the Lord and living out gospel realities, meeting the needs of their cities and taking, taking, taking the gospel to the just most hardcore places. 
not slanderers. In parentheses here, I have gossip. Gossip and slander has done so much destruction in the church. And I pray as believers, we would not put up with any of it. That if you're ever in a place where there is gossip and slander, you would be one to, to one not, choose not to be a part of it and one to put an end to it. Because I can't tell you how many lives it's destroyed. You know, women, I'm not picking on you, but as men are more inclined to dish out physical abuse, women are more inclined to dish out verbal ab- abuse. And, uh, and I'm sure we've all experienced some kind of physical pain in our lives. I think most of us would agree that the most uh, harm or hurtful things that uh, have been hurtful to us are, are the words. And I pray that as, as, as men, as women, across the board, we would not slander or gossip. This term not only refers to go- gossip, it's, it also refers to idle chatter about people. And then slander, false accusation. The word in the Greek is diablos. Sound familiar? It's used 34 times in the New Testament for a title of Satan. When you slander, you play the part of the devil himself. Not slaves to much wine. The Cretans loved to party, both the men and the women, okay? There would be these huge festivals where gallons and gallons of strong drink were available for consumption. And when making this a habit of your life, it carries well into your life. And this phrase refers to drunkenness. People drank for the same reasons they do today. They want to forget about some kind of pain. Perhaps they're lonely. Perhaps for, for some of the older people, they're old age itself. And the word enslaved carries the meaning to be held and controlled against one's own will. You must not become a slave to wine because even though it's used as an escape, it'll eventually become your prison. And older people addicted to alcohol will be a stumbling block to the younger generation. They are to teach what is good. And remember, we're talking about the household of God. The household of God is to make much of Jesus. And how are these older women going to make much of Jesus? How are they to behave? They're to train the younger women. Teach them what is good. They are to teach what is good, excellent, holy, praiseworthy. These things are the very things that they need to pass on. You know, these are the women that have, that have gone through life. They've battled, all right? Maybe they're single, but, they're, you know, they're single and godly, and they've, 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 they've been through those battles, all right? Um, they, they've had kids. They, they, they've been married. They've been through the ups and downs, and, and they've walked with the Lord faithfully in that. And they're to take that. They're to take the faith that the Lord has instilled in them and teach the other women what it's like. This is, this is a living model of what it means to follow Jesus. As Paul said, follow, follow me as I, as I follow Christ. Now, the question is, do you see a pattern here? Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. It's not rocket science. And I feel that sometimes we've missed the boat on this. Let me tell you that it is not, it's not the job of a youth pastor or a children's pastor to pour into the next generation. It's the job of the church. It's all of our responsibility. But what we, we've done is we live in this, this consumer-saturated, individualistic culture. And I praise, if you're, if you're pouring your life into, into other people, praise God. I'm saying as a whole, how are we doing? 
Scripture is clear. We're the household of God. We're to invest in each other. We're to disciple each other, minister to one another. And maybe you didn't get that when you were younger. Maybe you didn't have godly examples. My challenge to you is stop the curse then. Choose to say, I know what I know to be true here in this word, and I'm going to live that out. And I know it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be like me taking the gospel to the island of Crete, but we're going to, God's going to work that out as we go and walk with him. And what are the older women to teach the younger women? To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You know, I often pick on men a lot. And today, I'm going to pick on, pick on our ladies. To the reason why, in, in some marriages, the reason why the way some of your husbands are is partly your fault. It could be the endless criticism, comparison, or just your, your stubbornness and refusal to follow. I'm not saying that's all women. I'm saying that to some. And we come to this concept of submission. And we have to ask, why does it start here? Now, I'm not watering down the requirements for a man. Uh, for those of you that had the opportunity to attend the conference last weekend with Vodi Bakum, uh, you're definitely clear on what, what God requires of the man. And my wife uh, just chuckles at me. She's like, I'm so thankful I'm not a man. <laughs> but here we, we come to this concept of submission and I believe that when, when the scriptures start with submission with, with wives or slaves, whatever it may be in the scriptures, it starts there because unless the person's willing to follow, it's not going to matter how good the leader is. Now, don't get me wrong. The, the husband has, has, a, has definitely a high standard. But this portion of Titus is directed towards younger women. And Paul, of course, is specifically speaking to wives women who are married here. But if you're not married, don't tune me out, okay? Don't think that this isn't relevant. This is extremely relevant. If you know, if you are a woman, if you're a young woman, you need to know what it is that God has in mind for you. And the prayer is this, as men and women, we would pray that we would pray to the Lord, make, make us the men and women you created us to be. Men and women who live for the glory of God. And I confess that when I pray that, I often don't know what I'm really asking for. And yes, Paul does talk about singleness and its gift. It's not for your self-gratification, but rather your singleness, singleness is a time for the glory of God. Regardless of singleness or marriage, it's all to be for the glory of God. So women, regardless of what stage in life you're in, I mean, this teaching from the word of God is being attacked. And, and there are women in the church I have lots of healthy discussions with, with men and women, especially like college-age young adults. And this, this basic teaching of a relationship between men and women, there's I mean, people all across the board on it. And I'm amazed at how much the world has influenced some of our thinking. Um, I'm going to give you an example. I mean, in, in my culture, right, in, in, uh, in, in some families, like it'd be, a, it'd be a big deal, all right, if you brought a non-Korean home to, to, as your spouse, all right, and this is like this is in some of the Christian homes. All right, so just say there was a there was a young Korean lady. This is not in every Korean home, so I mean I'm not trying to just stereotype, but it's but it's in a lot. If they were to bring like um, a person of a different ethnicity 
Okay, mom and dad would not be happy. But they, just say they were a God-fearing believer, all right, they'd still be unhappy. But yet they're willing to compromise and say, you know what, it's, it's another Korean person. They're not a believer, but they're a Korean person. And like, sometimes I think we fail to see how much the culture has influenced the way we think, how much culture and tradition has uh, shaped the way we think. Of course, we know God has designed man and woman, and he's, de- and he's designed the institution of the family. And we have to look at Adam and Eve. I know as men, we're like, hey, Eve ate the fruit, right? She did. And in so doing, she rebelled against God and against her husband. But we all know Adam's failure. Look at this, Genesis 3.11. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam failed. Hugely as a man there. But they both ate the fruit, and in so doing, led the entire human race into rebellion. Now, what was, what was the curse of Eve? It was not only pain in childbirth, but if you look at Genesis 3.16, it says this. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain, and you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's two camps of, of, of interpretation here, okay, for that, that part of your desire shall be for your husband, all right? So you have folks here on this side that say, well, that means that woman is going to tend to just always overrule man. I used to think that, all right? And then there's another interpretation, and you'll have to decide this on your own as you study the scriptures, that that signifies something else. And when you look at the word desire, it's not, a sec- it's not sexual or psychological. Okay, Adam and Eve had this before the fall. It's the same word used in the story of Cain and Abel. During Cain's encounter with God, after he killed Abel, God said this in Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The term desire in its root means compel, impel, and urge. Sin wanted to master Cain, but God commanded Cain to master sin. The word for desire in Genesis 3.16 can mean craving or longing. And the issue is best understood if we make the simple substitution of God for her husband. Her desire should be for her God. Instead, her desire, craving, and longing is misplaced. The curse is not that women want to dominate the men in their lives. Women's problem is that they worship the men in their lives and look to them for affirmation and provision emotionally and spiritually for things that God alone is supposed to provide. So what is the root problem? It's idolatry. If, uh, if any of you have time, I recommend anything from uh, this uh, woman by the name of Wendy Alsop. And she wrote a book called Practical Theology for Women. This is her take on this. And this is <laughs> so profound. Okay, I'm just going to read it to you. Just, just bear with me. She says, if you think that the foundational result of the fall of man in the average woman's life is a desire to dominate, your ministry is going to miss, well, the vast majority of problems in a woman's life. Hey, this is from a, from a woman, all right, Christian woman. Certainly, I know my fair share of dominating, manipulative, control, freakish women, of which I am often chief, but our problem goes much deeper than the symptomatic issue of control. We are idolaters. We look to men to meet a need they couldn't meet emotionally, spiritual, physically. And instead of recognizing our sovereign, compassionate, and wise father in heaven as a place to which we should have looked, we started looking within ourselves once the men in our lives disappointed us. 
Control tactics aren't the manifestation of an innate desire to dominate the men in our lives. Instead, we resort to manipulation and control because we long too hard to rest in the men in our lives. We grasp and clamor, lead me spiritually, provide for me physically, affirm me emotionally. And when they can't or don't, then we attempt to lead ourselves spiritually, provide for ourselves physically, and seek outside affirmation for ourselves emotionally. Instead, we don't need to change our desire or craving. We simply need to change the object of it. God, I need you to meet the spiritual void in my life. Certainly, child, I will not leave you as an orphan. I've sent my spirit to bring to your remembrance all I have taught you. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And she continues here. We're not going to really understand how the gospel equips us, reclaim God's image in us as his daughters until we understand clearly what our problem is. I can't emphasize strongly enough that the problem in women created by the fall is deeper than control and domination. It may play out that way in some women, but it doesn't play out that that way in all women. There certainly is a battle between the sexes as a result of the fall, but it's often one-sided. For every controlling, manipulative, take-charge woman who tends to be out there in front of us all, there are five pathetic doormats hidden in the shadowy corners of life, waiting desperately for crumbs from porno guy's table, They'll do whatever it takes, perform demeaning sexual acts, sacrifice the hearts of their children to an abuser and other unimaginable acts of desperation. Like a prisoner chained in a cell, lapping water that spills out the toilet because he's dying of thirst. This insatiable craving is an issue of worship and idolatry. And apart from Christ, our tendency after the fall is to set up men as being able to meet needs in us that only God can meet. And there's no limit to how desperate we can become. And we see that as the curse. And we see the curse of a man that he will do everything he can to take advantage of the woman. Shame on us. As a, as a man, I'm embarrassed of some of these statistics. Every nine seconds in the U.S., a woman is assaulted or beaten. Around the world, at least one in every three women has been beaten, coerced into sex, or otherwise abused during her lifetime. And most often, the abuser is a member of her own family. Domestic violence is the leading cause of injury to women, more than car accidents, muggings, and rapes combined. Studies suggest that up to 10 million children witness some form of domestic violence annually. And nearly one in five teenage girls who have been in a relationship said a boyfriend threatened violence or self-harm if presented with a breakup. So the results of the fall. The fall resulted in this distortion and the role of man and woman. And God's designed it to, to work in a certain manner. And he tells the young women, love your husbands. Young women, you are to love your husbands. The word philandros it's, uh, means friend or loving as a friend. It's this kind of love that indicates tenderness. A biblical counselor by the name of Martha Peace suggested that philandros means to be fond of one's husband or consider him to be a dear friend. It also carries a sense of agape love, what, what, people, know to, uh, what people know as God love. It's God-sized love because it's not based on emotions, but rather the will. They're to love their children. It's this unconditional love, regardless of what the child looks like or how he acts or behaves. 
It's also a commitment to raise the child in the ways of God or to be self-controlled. This word is uh, in, in the NASB translated sensible, and it's the same word used to challenge the, the, the elders, the older men, and in, all, in fact, all believers. It's also common sense and good judgment. They're also to be pure. This term refers primarily to moral purity. It also refers to modesty, refers to a healthy sense of shame, saying anything, doing anything, or dressing in any way that would cause a man to lust. Discreetly refers to moral control, to keeping passions, especially sexual passions, subdued. It's another phase where we get controversial, working at home. It's the call to biblical motherhood, and it's so attacked right now. And often I don't understand the arguments when I read them. It's looked upon as oppressive to to a woman. And women, of course, will need to use wisdom and discernment as to how much time is spent outside of the church, but it's basically saying that you've got to be the managers of of the household too. You're You're like the glue that keeps it all together. Women, younger women are to be kind, submissive to their own husbands. And why? Why? What's the reason that Paul gives us here in Titus? So that the word of God may not be reviled. Do you remember? We're the household of God. All right. We represent him. We're his children as the church. And this is the vehicle that, that God wants to use to witness to Jesus. So Paul is instructing. This is what a church is supposed to look like. So that the word of God may not be reviled. And that's the younger women. And now, younger men, it's your turn. You're not off the hook. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. (laughs) I think Paul just knew that we were all ADD, or we just had bad memories. And he's like, okay, you know, the older men, older women, and and, uh, younger women, they can remember like seven things. Younger men, be (laughs) self-controlled. And makes perfect sense to me. I don't have time to read to you all these statistics, but if you even just read that opening chapter of a book called Church Planner, Pastor Darren Patrick just goes through all these lists of of how, as, as young men, we are failing. Be self-controlled. And if you're single, don't shut me out here. Don't think that this sermon doesn't apply to you. It does. You don't just find a girl one day and just get married. You have to begin the journey now. Okay? Begin preparing yourself now to understand what does it mean to be a godly man. And that needs to happen in the context of the church. You need to find some older men here if you're a younger man. All right? You need to seek their counsel. The huge blessing, um, didn't share this um, last service, but um, I have the privilege of just even just meeting with, with older men. I've, I've prayed that for years in my life and um, was going through a difficult time. Um, I was actually um, having some, some issues with, with a previous pastor I was serving under, and I'm just a human too. I'm struggling with like bitterness and just anger and resentment. And I just remember bringing it to, it was actually Brad and John, and just saying, hey, I know what I'm feeling is wrong. So, because like I really want to hurt this guy, like that's like I, I know it's wrong. I know that I'm, I know that I know that it's not right. But I just my heart is so hard, like I can't can't stop feeling that. 
And, you know, sometimes you want people to like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, you should feel like that. Or you, you, want, you want them to encourage you, you know, so that you can just keep going on your soapbox. But one thing that John did right away, he just said, stop. I said, okay, we're going to pray for your pastor. And we just spent the next, I don't even know how long, just, and they were just pouring out their hearts, you know, for, for, uh, for, my, for this previous pastor I was serving under. And honestly, supernaturally, the thing just lifted off my chest. And, you know, we, we need that. I know, I know where my pitfalls are. I know where I fall short. And, and you know, older women, older men, we need that. We need to be poured into. And I pray that we will all join in this journey. Then he looks to Titus and he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Okay, this is, this is applying to younger men still too because Titus is in this category that you'd be a model of good works. Okay, in your teaching, in your life, you would show integrity and dignity and sound speech. And why? So that it, it won't be condemned and that there won't be, a, that, that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Remember, this is how you're to be in the household of God to be a witness for Jesus so that the word of God may not be reviled. How we act matters. How we live within the house of God matters. And we don't have time to go to verses 9 through 10, but it, here's the category on slaves. And like I said, this is a blanket statement. It's hitting everybody in the church, the whole household and all the members. How you're to be faithful. And in closing here, verses 11 through 15, how is all this possible? Okay, he gives us all these, you know, all these commands. How is this possible? Look at verse 11. What's the first word? For. For what? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. How are we to do this? That concept, the grace that saves you is the grace that sustains you. How are we going to have gospel witness? The grace of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. It's the very thing that's going to empower us as a church. Uh, We're going to be coming now into a time of uh, communion. And I want us to have some self-reflection at this time, okay? As we, as we come to the word, right, and as we even come to the table, right, the illustration used that we come to the table to partake in the, in the elements, in communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a call to reflect on your life. It's a call to say, you know, God, you know, it's, it's really a time of reflection and to ask God, how have I been living my life? What are the areas of my life in which I need to repent? And, and, and it's awesome because communion, it, it's bittersweet. It's like a double-edged sword, okay? We do have that attitude of reverence, all right? And we don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner, right? 
And we approach that table humbly before our Savior, but at the same time, we approach it with a glad heart. Because guess what? Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. So we can know that as we come to this table, and as we come to this table imperfect and broken, that Jesus smiles at us and says, hello, friend. And we know Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So before you take the elements, one thing I just challenge you with today is just to pray. And to know as you have these elements, you, you have the body of Jesus and you have the blood of Jesus here. And it's a reminder of what Jesus paid for us. He paid it all. And that because of what he's done for us on the cross, we're, we're ushered into his family. We, we get to be part of this household of God. So let this be a time of remembrance and, of course, repentance and a celebration. You know, one of the glorious things about communion, it's not isolation. It's that we do this together. That as you look around you and as you partake of the bread and the wine, this is something that is done in community. That guess what? Like, you know, as God is working and this is our family, we get to do this together. It's like a, it's like a beautiful grand family activity that we need to celebrate as well. Amen? So with that, let's pray. God, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love imperfect people. Thank you that you don't merely put up with us. No, you love us perfectly in spite of our many shortcomings. And God, I'm just, um, just my heart, Lord, just want to see our church it's on fire for you, Lord, living out gospel realities. I'm so thankful for the men and women here. So thankful for them that are, that are just, that Christ is so real to them and they're living that out. And God, I know I have many areas in my life to grow. You continuously reveal them. And I know what you call me to do is to uh, return to you and to repent. And God, where else am I going to go? And I pray the same thing for my dear brothers and sisters here, that instead of just being stuck in conviction or just, just feeling uncomfortable, I pray that if there's just areas in their life, maybe they haven't taken the Great Commission seriously. Maybe they haven't been, been making disciples. Maybe they haven't been leading their families or just whatever, God, whatever reason it may be, God. I pray instead in it now, as you've revealed that to them, Lord, that there would be this heart of repentance, God. there would be this return to the source of life. And I'm praying within our ministry, God, that there would be older men, older women, just pouring into the younger men and younger women, that there would be relationships forged, that you would knit people's hearts together as you, as in the scriptures, it's so explicit that you knitted the heart of David and Jonathan together. A relationship that was not supposed to be like 
that was not supposed to occur culturally. Pretty much a prince and a pauper, Lord. So I'm praying for that, God, that you would just knit people's hearts and that their common ground would not be affinity, but it would be the gospel of Jesus. And I'm praying that you would use our witness here at Cornerstone, Lord. Father God, we want to make an impact in our city. And we know that you're leading us, Lord, and we're just praying that we would simply follow. I'm praying for our church as a household, as a family of families, God. Knowing that there's just many new people coming in and out, visiting every Sunday, God. You know, as, a, as I talk with all of our, our, our pastors, you know, and, and staff, that it just breaks our heart that people come in and out. So we're praying that we would just begin, you know, just begin living gospel reality out. That there'd be relationships forged, God. And thank you so much that we get to partake in communion. And we know that it's, it's a physical picture, a physical reality of the gospel. The body that was given for us that went through so much pain. The body that was flogged. Hands that were nailed into and your feet. And we know that the blood represents the blood of the new covenant that was shed for uh, the forgiveness of sin. So, Jesus, we approach your table with a humble, reverent heart, knowing that we're imperfect, but knowing that you're perfect and, and that you receive us gladly. So I pray that it would be, one, a time of repentance, remembrance, and celebration. Thank you, Lord, that I get to partake in communion today with my brothers and sisters here. And would you be honored? You're amazing. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're awesome. And it's in your son's perfect name we pray. Amen.
Church family, we'll see you next Sunday.